Today's episode is brought to you by our sponsoring partner, the Campaign for Black Male Achievement. I want you to take a quick second and imagine what our nation would look like if we boldly invested in our neighborhoods and cities and showed young people, particularly black men and boys, real opportunities to build upon their God-given assets and live their best lives possible. That's the work that the Campaign for Black Male Achievement and my dear friend Sean Dove, CEO of CBME, has been working on over the past decade. They've joined and supported thousands of leaders on the ground to elevate and accelerate this very vision and mission. Visit tbpod.com slash partners today to learn more about CBMA and consider joining their membership and or donating to help them scale the impact of this growing field of black male achievement. You're listening to the trailblazers.fm podcast, where we'll explore the stories of today's successful black professionals, entrepreneurs, and leaders. Join us to access the knowledge, resources, and tools of these accomplished professionals and come away with the know-how, confidence, and motivation you'll need to blaze your trail. And now here's your host, Stephen A. Hart. Hey, Blazer Nation. Welcome to a brand new episode of the Trailblazers.fm podcast. I'm your host, Stephen A. Hart. We are now several weeks into our 2019 Trailblazer Entrepreneur Series. And if you're an entrepreneur, a business owner, whether you're accomplished and seasoned or you're aspiring, I think we've got something for everyone spread across this past month and more of content that began back on episode 192 with Eric Thomas. So I'm going to encourage you to keep listening and more importantly, begin putting some of the lessons learned across these episodes into application right now. Hit me up and tell me you know, how you've been impacted by these episodes. You can send me an email to stephen at tbpod.com or feel free to leave us a review over on Apple Podcasts like Reducated. I saw that review this week and, and just smiled and I just want to share it with you. It read, while I listen to several podcasts, I've come to expect a highly informed, relevant experience every time I listen to Stephen introduce his guests. I love how he asks his guests each podcast what they're grateful for. Thank you, Stephen, for your commitment to bringing extraordinary trailblazers on a weekly basis. It's the mission field that keeps me motivated. Listen, thank you so much for those kind words, Reggie K. Really warm my heart, and I'm excited to share that we've got another great episode in store for you and for our entire Blazer Nation community today. Our feature trailblazer is Tuan Davis. Tuan is the CEO and managing partner of the Steinbridge Group, which has structured, executed, and invested in nearly $1 billion in commercial and residential real estate. And under Mr. Davis's leadership, which includes managing the investment program, and also overseeing the day-to-day operations and transaction pipeline, Steinbridge is now investing more than $425 million in the urban single-family home market. So that said, grab your pad and pen or open your favorite note-taking app. This episode is packed with so much motivational mission fuel, and I just know that you guys are going to love all you hear about the story and the wisdom packed in this episode from Mr. Tawan Davis. Tawan, thank you so much for joining us on Trailblazers.fm. Thanks for having me. It's good to be with you. 
So we start all our conversations off from a place of gratitude. And so I'm wanting to know, you know, what you're feeling most grateful for in your life right now. Well, at this moment, I'm feeling most grateful that it stopped raining in the Northeast. It was yes. stormy over the weekend and the sun is finally kind of peeking through the clouds. So it's good to be alive and good to have some fair weather leading from the spring toward the summer. Absolutely. Mahastas are appreciating the water, but man, I, I, I would appreciate being able to get outside with the kids more. So I, yeah, now what part of this country are you in? I'm in Maryland. I'm just outside oh, of yeah. DC. Yeah. So sure, sure, sure. getting a good bit of rain as well. Tawan, I read that you grew up in Portland, Oregon. Is that correct? I did, yeah. So my family moved to Oregon in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s during the Great Migration. So while other Southern families, we had been sharecroppers in Arkansas for many generations from slavery through the turn of the 20th century. And then from, while we had been before that, as we understand, we had been slaves in Mississippi. But my great-grandparents and great-great-grandparents whom I knew were sharecroppers in Arkansas. Mm. And while other families were moving to the north, to Chicago and Detroit and Harlem, my family moved west to Oregon. And they worked in the shipyards in a little town on the border of the state of Washington and Oregon called Vanport. And they worked in shipyards. They built warships, really. And those warships were later sailed, sold to Canada. And then Canada then sold them to the United Kingdom in the lead up to the Second World War. This is when Winston Churchill was head of the British Navy. And he was trying to build up their maritime power with the threat of Hitler. The U.S. could not directly sell because we had promised that we wouldn't enter the war. And Roosevelt wouldn't directly sell arms to the U.K., but they allowed American companies to sell those ships to Canada and then for Canada to sell them to the UK. And my family built those ships or were part of the crews that built those ships in the Northwest. Wow, that's a fantastic story. Wow, thanks for sharing that. Bringing it forward, what comes to mind when you think about growing up in that area? Well, it's interesting. You know, my family grew up in an area called Northeast Portland. These zip codes are 97211 and 97212. They are today the most gentrified zip code in the United States. In at that's bigger, more gentrified than Harlem, more gentrified than the U Street corridor in Washington, D.C. And that is because after my family moved there, there was white flight. Large families moved out of that area. And then the tide changed 40, 50 years later. They moved back. And so my family that grew up in a predominantly African-American enclave of Oregon, with other Arkansans, frankly, now it's kind of gone to the suburbs and other part of the region. So that really is what I find most impactful when I walk down or jog down the street that I grew up, is that they're irrecognizable to the time that I grew up there, you know, 20 plus years ago. Yeah. Wow. You know, as I was reading about your story, I was curious, you know, how you shared that you grew up being raised by a single mom, experiencing financial struggles, and then going on to attend and thrive at schools like Georgetown, Oxford, and Harvard. You know, I found that so remarkable. Don't know if you wanted to share anything on that transition and just growing up. Was your mom, you know, someone that pushed you towards education? You know, my mother is a remarkable woman. I call her Victorian in her ethics. So mm-hmm. she, she, which in my mind means she could have been born at the turn of the late 1800s, early 1900s. She's a conservative, God-fearing traditionalist. And <laughs> that was the context of our upbringing. If you go back up my family tree, and I'm big on context, so you'll yes. hear me talk, you know, answer your questions, not just about myself, but in the context in which I've experienced, because I think that's 
I am, and so many of us are really a product of our collective context. So I always try to put things in the appropriate frame. And so, you know, when I think of my family and education, I can go up my family's family tree, you know, several generations. And I'm the first person that I know with a four-year college degree. There are people who have started and stopped. I think we had a couple of folks maybe get associate's degrees here and there, but I was the first person to go and kind of stick it out. And the conservative religious context in which my mother raised me has a lot to do with that. On the one hand, my mom was just a stickler for good behavior and ethical behavior. And so I didn't get involved in a lot of things that other people in my community got involved in. You know, I grew up with several cousins who were like brothers to me to this day. Mm-hmm. There were five of us. And, you know, my great grandmother used to have to take care of all of us while our parents were working and all. And, you know, it was funny because, yeah, there were five boys and one girl. And, you know, the girl, when we used to stay at my great grandmother's house, she had a great big king bed. And my oldest cousin, who's the girl, used to sleep at the head of the bed. And the boys used to all have to bunk down at the bottom of the bed. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, a, you know we, we really were a family. And But over time, we went separate ways. A few of them have been through the penal system. Over time, one of my cousins, the week or month that I went to Georgetown, went to jail to state prison. I might be federal prison for selling drugs that didn't come out until I got out of Harvard Business School. Wow. You know, I'm the only guy. I think they finished high school in four years and not even to mention having gone on to have an opportunity to get higher education. So it was my mother's unique focus on personal and ethical discipline. That plus the fact that I became very involved in my community and in the church early gave me a reason to want to go to school. It gave me a reason to want to improve myself. It gave me a reason to want to go do more and affirm myself because I was involved in my church. I was involved in the youth programs. That led me to be involved in the NAACP at a state and national level. I was a member of the Youth and College Committee, the National NAACP. I served as interim chairman for, I think, a half a term. And so all of those things exposed me to a whole world that growing up in Portland, Oregon, wouldn't have exposed me to. And in fact, at that time in the late 90s, actually early 90s, late 80s, to date myself, Portland <laughs> was the center of one of the most violent gang problems and drug problems in the country. Uh, Uh, California had just passed the three strikes you're out rule. I think that was Pete Wilson's earlier governorship. And uh, so a lot of the gang activity from San Jose, from Sacramento, Oakland moved northward. And so Portland, Oregon became a hotbed. And it's funny because people don't, you think of Oregon, you think of, you know, the Oregon Trail, people think of granola, people think of, you know, ultra liberalism. They don't think of the fact that in those days, Portland, Oregon had one of the most active gang violence problems in the country because of these stricter laws in California that moved a lot of gang and drug activity to our part of the country. And so, you know, yeah, growing up there, there was not a lot of exposure to very well-educated, very accomplished African-American people. And so there was one or two glimpses of that. One of them was in the church being surrounded by people who had at least some accomplishment, some aspirations, ministers that were forward-looking. And the NAACP, where I met a guy named Lucius Hicks, who was chairman of the Oregon State NAACP and who was then chairman of the Portland School Board and who was a real pusher of education, uh, who let me travel with him to the state and regional and eventually the national meeting of the NAACP, where I met Merle Evers at the time, who was chairman of the board of the NAACP. And all of these remarkably accomplished historic leaders in the African-American community. And that transformed my vision of what was possible as a young man. Wow. We'll talk about the Steinbridge group in just a second, but wanted to get 
as you talked about the context, wanted to get a little bit of a framework for your career prior to beginning your walk in entrepreneurship. Sure. So I got out of Georgetown. I studied economics there, uh, macroeconomics. And then I worked on Wall Street. I was at Goldman Sachs. I was an investment banker in the last financial crisis in the dot-com boom and bust. Mm-hmm. I went from there to business school, grad school and business school. And then I worked at Prudential. Prudential Real Estate Investors at the time was one of the largest investors in institutional real estate on the globe. Mm-hmm. had about $130 billion of assets under management. So it was humongous. And I worked for them doing real estate investing, first in the United States, investing in on behalf of one of their funds. And then they sent me to the UK where I worked a couple of years in London. And I invested in, let's say I invested in London, in the UK, in Spain, and in the Nordic countries. So in Scandinavia. So I did that for a few years. I left Prudential and went to work for the city of New York, which was the most dramatic change from being kind of a high-flying, international, you know, global citizen, flying around the world, investing, you know, hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars on behalf of, you know, multinational investors, to then working for the city of New York under the mayor's office in the Economic Development Corporation, where I led public-private partnerships, investing, working with private developers, large private developers, to invest and redevelop parts of the city. So anything that had to require some public input, either it required public land or public contributions from the city or state or air right or some other kind of major zoning variation for large development, I was in charge of helping to structure that. And that was the least paying, but best job I have ever had. (laughs) Wow! It was a phenomenal job. I got to meet some of the major players in the New York real estate scene, some of the major business leaders in New York. It positioned me to really launch out on my own later on. Mm -hmm. It gave me the credibility and the exposure to do that. New York City, it was under Mayor Bloomberg, so it was a very progressive business regime. Mm-hmm. It was, you know, in a recovering economy after September 11th. That kind of went all the way through the early 2000s, and it was just an amazing experience. And so that, I did that for a couple of years. I was then president of a real estate development company for about a year and a half to two years. And then I started the Steinbridge Group in 2000, and I want to say 16. Wow. So tell us a little bit about the Steinbridge Group and the business model. It's rare that you kind of see companies doing what you do, and, and it really caught my attention. Sure. Well, my approach to real estate broadly is that real estate is a long-term intergenerational asset class. Yes. Let's start with where you put your money, right? So, you know, there's only, most of us only have so much money. So you got to make a few kind of broad decisions. Do you put it in the bank or do you invest it or do you spend it? That's decision number one. Mm-hmm. Decision number two, if you're going to invest it, what do you invest in? Do you buy stocks, bonds, options, private equity, or real estate? Mm-hmm. For me, the answer was, well, if I want to create long-term wealth that will last multiple generations and that produces cash, then among the different options to invest, real estate is a very, very clear option. Then you have to decide, do you, do in, do you invest in the U.S. or in Latin America or in the United Kingdom or in Europe or elsewhere? Mm-hmm. Well, the United States remains the most lucrative, stable, risk-adjusted investment market in the world. More money comes here than anywhere else in the world. And the United States still produces better returns over longer periods of time because they're stable returns. You might make more money 
investing in Latin America mm-hmm. one year, but you could also lose more money in the next year. So over long periods of time, the United States for the developed economies is the strongest investment profile. Mm-hmm. And so it became clear that, you know, if of the universe of investment possibilities, investing in the United States in real estate was where I wanted to be, then you have to decide what to invest in. Mm-hmm. So I started in 2016 buying office buildings. We bought a few large office buildings and got some notoriety and visibility for buying those. But it became clear to me again, real estate, my mantra is it a long-term intergenerational cash flowing asset. So the goal over time is to acquire real estate and then augment, increase the cash flow over time. Well, office buildings are a difficult asset class because people aren't using as many office spaces as they used to. Mm-hmm. With the advent of WeWork or work from home, the you know telecommuting, that has changed the way people use offices. And so there are major parts of the country like you know downtown Boston or even midtown Manhattan where office usage is actually shrinking. Mm-hmm. And so I found that even though we were very successful in our early acquisitions of office buildings, I didn't think that over the long term, over and when I say long term, I'm thinking 10, 20, 30 years, that was the asset class to be in. Second one we looked at was hotels. The challenge with hotels is that they're very capital intensive and they're cyclical. So they do well in a great economy. They do poorly in a bad economy. And so you have to have the, and that's why so many of the hotel brands are consolidating, Mm -hmm. right? So now Marriott, Hilton, and all these guys have just come together. It's like outrageous. They they have been rivals for generations, 50 plus years. And they're merging because the hotel business is a tough business because you have to be big enough and have enough capital to ride out these very, very extreme cycles of the economy. And that leaves really the other third major class. And there are other, there's student housing and senior housing, all these other opportunities. But the other major category is really the residential category. And in the United States, there is a perennial demand, a long-term perpetual demand for good housing and for residences. And so it became clear to me that the opportunity in real estate for my generation over the next 10, 20, 30 years was really in the housing sector, providing good quality housing for American people. And that is the largest asset class in real estate. If you add up everything else, residential real estate is still by far the largest investment class in the world in the United States, in fact. So, you know, it became clear to me that what we wanted to do was really focus on the long-term opportunities in the housing and the residential sector. So that's kind of how we narrowed down to really becoming an investor, a strategic investor in the housing space. Right, right. So what was the problem? Like, take me now to kind of what you're doing, because obviously it's, you identify this as the area to focus on, but what was the problem that you saw that you know Steinbridge has essentially created a solution for? Sure. And that's a great way to frame the question because most good businesses, in fact, all good businesses, identify and strategically solve a particular problem. And that's right. how they're successful. So I think that solving a problem is the opportunity. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what we tried to do. So when in the last housing crisis. So let's talk about what happened in 2008. So a historic decrease in the financial market and in the housing markets, the worst since the Great Depression. There is a 17% drop in homeownership. There is a spike in foreclosures. The U.S. housing market is decimated. People go from owning to renting. Mm-hmm. In the 1980s, people would get married and they would rent for two years after they got married. Today, they get married and they rent for seven years on average after they got married. When I graduated from college, people had between four 
and $9,000 of debt. Depending on whose numbers you believe, that number is now anywhere from $25,000 to $39,000 in student loans. And if you went to grad school, that number jumps to sixty dollars to $80,000. And so people are encumbered with more debt. If you look at the increase in American wages, they've actually been flat since the 1980s. So if you add all this on, this has really created a home ownership crisis in the United States, and it has created a longer renter cycle. So people are renting well into their 30s, mid-30s, late 30s, sometimes early 40s. And at that point, 20 years ago, those folks would be homeowners. If you add to that the fact that the baby boomer is retiring and selling their large suburban homes, moving into the city center, changing their lifestyle, often downsizing, either buying a smaller place or renting. If you add all that, then what has emerged is this huge demand in the United States for housing, particularly around the major cities in America. If you go to the top 15 cities in the United States, they represent two-thirds of new jobs in the whole country. And so those areas are booming. And in those areas, we find that there is a huge housing crisis, that how most investors and real estate developers responded to that housing crisis early on was by building really high-end, really fancy buildings, right? So they build, spent millions of dollars building glass towers in Manhattan, in Washington, D.C., in Philadelphia, in Boston. And those units go for Three, four, five thousand dollars a month in rent. That's not even a mortgage. Right. That's just to rent. And so, you know, if you are a everyday person, an attorney or yeah. a lawyer or a doctor, you can afford that. Right. But the average American family makes fifty-three thousand dollars a year. Right. In a family of two working people. And so, if you are the average person in the United States, if you're a teacher or a nurse right. or a police officer or a firefighter, you cannot afford what the real estate development community delivered as a response to the housing crisis. Right? Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? So they, yeah. they deliver, you know, you want, you're trying to eat flank steak and maybe a hamburger and they deliver high-end Wagyu beef filet mignon. <laughs> it's just like, <laughs> it's the wrong solution right. for the average American family. And so that's what happened. And so the, there's a humongous housing crisis in every major city in the United States for working people. And we all know that because we all feel rents rising. Mm -hmm. We all feel and observe the displacement of communities like the one I grew up in, where people have been there for generations, but can no longer afford the taxes that are associated with those neighborhoods. We all see the increase in rapid gentrification as these neighborhoods transition, because people now have discovered West Philadelphia, and they've discovered you know, Georgia Avenue near Howard University, and they've discovered Harlem, and they've discovered Dorchester and Boston, all of these previously African-American or otherwise minority neighborhoods with proximity to all of the great transportation of the city center and proximity to the economic center of the region that are now basically booming. And so that has created a humongous housing crisis for not just for African-American people per se, but for all working Americans. Right. That make between forty-five dollars and $65,000 a year who form the backbone of the economy. And so it is so clear to me that the solution here is not to go into these cities and build yet another glass tower and charge people four dollars and $5,000 for rent. Mm-hmm. The solution here is to invest in the very same neighborhoods where these people want to live, these nice neighborhoods, these transitioning neighborhoods, these improving neighborhoods, and provide a product that is affordable. And by affordable, I don't mean government subsidy. By mm-hmm. affordable, I don't mean low-income housing. What I mean is 
that someone who gets up in the morning and goes to work every day and has, you know, decent income and decent credit can basically afford to live comfortably at that residence. And so that is really our, the opportunity. And so we are buying and making uh, homes in and around these transitioning areas where this rapid transition is happening, investing in those homes to improve them, bring them up to very, very high standard of living, and then renting them out at an affordable price for people who are working. And that really is the solution. And that's really the problem we're trying to solve and frankly, the opportunity, because for every house that we build, there is a long line of people who want the opportunity to live there. Mm. Wow. You know, I'm listening to you and I'm thinking about even where I live because in the DMV, you know, we work, luckily we work in Maryland. My wife works in Bethesda and I mean, we live way out. We're halfway to Frederick because we can't afford life in Bethesda or, you know, going further into DC. And think about it. When I, I went to Georgetown, right. so did my wife. Georgetown, <laughs> you know, we, what, yeah, I want to ask what year she is. She won't want to know that. <laughs> the, you know, when we lived there, Bethesda, Maryland was still kind of on the outskirts. When I went to college, if you went, you know, U Street, Georgia Avenue, like Florida Avenue, those areas are almost entirely gentrified. Yeah, absolutely. And when I say gentrified, I don't just mean racially so, because people really focus on that. And I understand. And as a person whose community was basically turned upside down by gentrification, almost every academic study on gentrification starts in my hometown. Even though people don't Mm. think of Portland, Oregon, they go straight to Portland because it is the most dramatic gentrification zip code in the country. And then they go to usually Harlem and they usually go also to an area called Graduate Hospital in Philadelphia, which is right south of City Hall. And they also usually study Washington, Mm D.C. But my little town is on that map. So I understand how jarring it is as an African-American person to experience gentrification. But the most gentrification is actually not even ethnic and racial. It is economic. Mm-hmm. It is the idea that people who you know, have been working for a living, maybe they're retired, maybe they're on a fixed income, they're making forty, fifty, sixty thousand dollars $60,000 are being replaced overnight right. by people making six figures plus. So this is $150,000, $250,000. And so these houses are going from you know, $50,000, dollars $200,000 values to six, $800 million values. They're going there yeah. in two to four years' time. I wish that you could find a house. Store. Yeah, you can't even find a house in Bethesda anymore for six or 700000 I mean, that's, no, absolutely that's now not. way out here. You know, it's, yeah, um, right. it, it's know, dramatic. It's dramatic. Yeah, it's, it's and, and, let, and let's just do the math here. I mean, how much money do you have to make to buy a $600,000 house? You right. need to make, right. you know, probably $125,000 to $150,000 right. to comfortably afford a $600,000 house. That puts you in the top 5 to 7% of the American income. Right. People forget that, you know, those people who have a little money, a little education, forget that the average American family makes $53,000 a year, right? right? So 150 to $200,000 to afford a $600,000 house, you're already in the top 5 to 7% of American people, mm-hmm. of American families. And so, you know, we can complain about that $600,000 house, but gosh, what about the person whose real budget is two fifty? Because a starter home in America should be between two hundred dollars and $250,000, maybe even one hundred and fifty dollars to two fifty, dollars depending on what part of the country you live in. That's a starter home in the United States. Should be about that number. And in and around the major cities, that house does not exist. 
Mm-hmm. That house does not exist. And so you've got to move all the way out to Frederick, Maryland, right. which if you work in D.C., is an hour and 15 minutes exactly. yeah. to drive into the city. And so you've got to move all the way out there just to have a middle class home in the Washington major metropolitan area. And that is just not true of Washington, D.C. That's true of Boston. That's mm-hmm. true of New York City. That's true of Philadelphia more and more. That's true of, you know, more and more in Los Angeles. You know, it's true in so many parts of the country and it's happening over and over again. Yeah, and it's amazing, you know, because I live in a town called Clarksburg and just in our community, our area has been one of the fastest growing neighborhoods in Maryland for like six, seven years. Amazing to see all these young CEOs and young families, because of course, you know, in fact, in the cost of raising kids here, daycare is so crazy expensive, it's another mortgage, right? So yeah, it's, it, you know, this is really a need in cities mm-hmm. like PC. And I'm sure, as you mentioned, you know, many other cities around the country. I wanted to pick your brain quickly and talk with you for a minute on your thoughts around leadership. I imagine you have a great team of people working with you and was curious how you work to attract and nurture and empower the people that, you know, the talent at your company. Yeah, that's a great question. And I have to say, you know, it's so funny because, you know, we, and this strategy alone, and the residential strategy, we have about a $500 million strategy here. And people think that raising money is the toughest part. It's actually not, mm. particularly when you have a good business idea. The capital markets in the United States in a strong economy like we're in now are relatively efficient. The most challenging part of our business is the people. And I will admit to you that that is an iterative process. Wow. Any entrepreneur, if they are honest, will tell you they never get the people right the first time. Mm -hmm. It is either their problem because they don't know themselves well enough to attract and retain compliments to themselves, or they have attracted the wrong people. But I don't know a single entrepreneur that has done it right the first time. And that's been our experience. It has been iterative. I have gone out, built teams, and then little over, over time, little by little, you better understand what you need. And you have to make adjustments. You add people, you take people away. And so being okay at the center of kind of perpetual dynamic and constant change as a company grows and matures is a very important part of being an entrepreneur, being at the center of a changing landscape of people as the company strengthens and matures is very important. So that's mindset number one. Mindset number two, I think for me, was to identify and solidify your core. So once I was able to really clarify what the company needed and attract those people, I have been able to really, really strengthen and solidify. I know who the core of our company is. There's a woman who works with us, an African-American woman who is our COO. I've known her for 20 years. She went to Georgetown with me and I went to Harvard Business School with her. Uh, We both worked on Wall Street at the same time. You know, she is, she keeps the trains running on time here. She's an amazing addition to our team. She forms a really important part and center of the core of our firm. And so lesson number two, and she's one of a few other people who really form kind of a kitchen cabinet of people who really make the major decisions and help to set the strategy for the company. So I think lesson number two was to identify the core. Lesson number three is, this is, you know, everyone will talk to you about this. Every entrepreneur and CEO will say this, but I got to tell you that it's so important to be values driven. Mm-hmm. People have to connect with your values. I always tell people that come to work with us and for us, I don't want you to do what I want you to do. I want you to do what 
you want you to do. Right? Mm-hmm. I want you to achieve your goals. I don't want you to achieve Steinbridge's goals. But if it so happens that Steinbridge's goals overlaps with your goals, then we should work together for a while. Right? And you should join our team. And if, on the other hand, Steinbridge's aspirations, goals, values, and ethics don't overlap with your aspirations, goals, values, and ethics, then let's agree to be friends. But we shouldn't work together. Right? So really, it's just finding where that overlap is, identifying that overlap, and encouraging people to pursue their goals in the context of the company, but not necessarily that I'm just getting people to, you know, this is, I don't run a manufacturing plant per se, where I just have to attract people to play a role. I actually have to attract people to make a contribution. And so, you know, finding that unique person to make a unique contribution is very different from what I might think of if I just needed to hire a bunch of physical bodies to do, you know, one job or another. Yeah, I listen to you and you're so, obviously you're very smart, but you're so meticulous and you think through everything. And I just love the way you've clearly laid out everything in your explanation today. As I hear you share your story and your wisdom, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on maybe what are some of the skills that make a great CEO? You know, to answer that question, we'd have to make the assumption that I am a great CEO. I I don't know that yet. (laughs) Right. I don't know that yet. I am a man in process. I'm a man on a walk. (laughs) I like to think of myself as a man on a walk. There are, but I will tell you what I admire. And here's the thing. There are some there is a CEO for every genre of business. Right. A great tech CEO would make a terrible investment banking CEO. Right. right? And he would make, and an investment banking CEO, having worked as an investment bank, could not be an entrepreneur for his life. If you gave one of these big banking CEOs $100 million to start a company from scratch, almost all of them would fail. Mm. And there are great examples of that. You know, there are great examples. What is the... Um, Oh, it's the big, there was a huge hedge fund that started back in the day. I can't remember the name off the top of my head, but started by these kind of high-end private equity and hedge fund guys. They started their own thing, blew well for a while, and then it basically almost ruined the market. Well, because being an entrepreneur is a very different skill set. So I would say it's not one side fits all. For an entrepreneurial CEO, which is a very specific skill set, the most important skill set for an entrepreneurial CEO is to consider himself an evangelist. Right. You know, we have I preach the gospel of Steinbridge. I preach the gospel of development, the gospel of housing, the gospel of economic opportunity. I have to be a constant champion for the cause. And that creates that requires, I should say, a certain amount of passion. It requires a certain amount of clarity. It requires irrational conviction. Mm. If you consider the early evangelists like Peter and Paul. You know, Peter, who was hung upside down, or Paul, who was several times imprisoned and then, you know, killed for his faith. If you think about these guys, I mean, to go through the lengths to which they went, they had to be, was irrational because clearly Paul, who was well educated, had an opportunity to revert back to his traditional Judaism, but was so deeply convicted and convinced about his Christian experience that he stuck to it despite facing death. And I think, frankly, to be an entrepreneur, you almost have to be that fanatical because the odds often start out so against you and the opposition can often be appear so insurmountable that to continue going, you have to have a deep belief, not just that this is a good business model, 
but that pursuing that business model is your personal calling. And that's how I feel. Mm-hmm. I don't just view myself as CEO of Steinbridge or as an entrepreneur. I view myself as a man with a calling. My calling is economic empowerment. My path to economic empowerment could have been to be a minister like my father, or could have been to pursue politics. I was asked twice to run for Congress, or it could have been to go down the path of a nonprofit. I was, or a teacher. I was a professor at NYU for a couple of years. But really, my path has been to beat down the doors of poverty and economic opportunity by building a company, by building a big business, by building a company that employs people, not just in our office where we have a a relatively small staff of well-trained, well-learned people. But a if you go into any of our developments, and each house, there are eight to 10 people working there at a time. If you multiply that by 20 or 30 houses that we're working on at any given time, there are two to 300 people that work for us just in the city of Philadelphia right. around our projects. That is a deeply empowering position to be in for a young man with my particular background. So I am passionate. I am an evangelist for my particular calling. And that is the calling of economic development and economic opportunity with Steinbridge as the vehicle for that impact. Great. Love it. As you look ahead, what's the vision? What do you see happening in the future with Steinbridge? I believe that we are well on our way to be a multi-billion dollar real estate company. You know, I don't want to overspeak and overstate our current financial opportunities, but because we're not a publicly traded or publicly owned company, you know, we will, I believe, achieve our goals in the next couple of years. And I'm convinced that with all opportunity and grace, we, in the next 10 to 15 years, will be a multi-billion dollar real estate investment company. And that is our goal. Our goal as a firm is to be one of the most respected and valuable firms in every category in which we invest. Mm-hmm. Love it. As we wrap up here, our Blazer Nation loves to hear the resources of our guest. And I can tell that you're well-read <laughs> just listening to you talk today. What books have you read or what should what are you reading right now that you think we should maybe consider adding to our queue? Sure. There are a few books that I suggest that any of the mentees that I have, and I've had the opportunity to mentor several young men and women in front of me as I get older and cross different important thresholds, the more important it becomes to me to mentor other people. And there are a few books that I recommend. One is The Power of Now. And this idea, and I think that's Eckhart Tolle is the, is the author, The Power of Now. It's the idea that we have to live in and seize and possess each moment. Another book is How to Win Friends and Influence People. It's a book that was written in the 1920s that basically just tells us how to get along with people by thinking less of ourselves than we think of other people. The Purpose Driven Life is an important one. And also The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Stephen Covey. You know, mm-hmm. people suggest that book, and I suggest that anyone read it that comes to work with us or that I mentor because just getting in some of those habits, you know, begin with the end in mind, put first things first. And just having those mantras in the back of your mind on any pursuit, I have found mutually helpful. Yes. Before I ask you the last question of the day, let me ask you, have you considered writing a book yourself? You know, it's interesting. I was asked by Forbes magazine this year, by Forbes, to write a book about our work. And I think that we have a little further to go. I think that, and I, at the end of the day, decided not to do so. And it was actually supposed to come out this summer. 
And I think I have a little further to go. I'd like to accomplish more. I'd like to walk a longer road. And then I think I'll have a little more to say. So maybe in another year or two, I'll be able to take the time to do that. And I'd like to get to a place where I feel like I have more to say and have a little bit more of a story to tell as far as our firm's growth and accomplishments. And I'd love to share that. I think you have several books in you. (laughs) I just can't wait to hear more from you. But I'll respect the OA that we have here. Last question for you. What's one action that our Blaze Nation should be taking this week that's going to help them to blaze their trail? That's a good question. Write it down. I mean, if the action for this week, again, you know, I do a lot of quoting of people who are smarter and wiser than I am, including the scriptures. So, you know, one of my favorite, I have two favorite. One is write the vision, make it plain, it shall speak and not lie. If you don't write it down, it doesn't exist. And I tell people that in our office all the time. I mean, if people come in my office with an idea, if they come in and say, we're going to do this, this is our plan for this. And I say, well, where's the paper? My view is if it's not written, it's not real. So you must write things down. The other reason to do that, again, is because, again, Psalm 190 is my favorite scripture, teach us to number our days so that we may incline our hearts to wisdom. The idea that we have limited time on the earth, we have limited time to engage in any particular pursuit. And so anything we must do, we must put it on a schedule, right? So number one, write it down. And number two, put it on a schedule because if you haven't, and it has to be a realistic schedule, an accomplishable schedule, but it still needs to be on a schedule because if it's not on a schedule, it won't get done. And so those are two things that absolutely anyone and everyone could and should do if they have specific goals that they'd like to accomplish. It doesn't take money. It doesn't take a particular skill set. doesn't take a particular kind of education to write it down and make a schedule. I love that. Tuan, how can our listeners learn more about the Steinbridge Group and stay connected with you? Sure. They can go to www.steinbridge.com. Steinbridge is S-T-E-I-N, bridge, one word, Steinbridge. They can learn to link with us there. I do have a Facebook page and that's it. I don't have any other social media, although I probably should expand into that. And the company also has a Facebook page as well. And we are actually expanding our social media presence over the next few months. Our team is working on that presently. It'll take us a little time to do that more extensively. Sounds good. Tawan Davis, thank you so much. I appreciate having this conversation. No problem. Good talking with you. Thanks for having me. I'm Steve Nehart, and you've been listening to the Trailblazers.fm podcast. If you're not yet doing so, consider following Trailblazers.fm on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and feel free to connect with me over on LinkedIn. Whenever you're posting stories or social media posts about trailblazers.fm, be sure to use the hashtag TBPod and hashtag Mission Fuel. We'll be able to see you and I'll be able to show some love. And in case you're not aware, our show notes for all our episodes can be found on our website over at tbpod.com. Now, if today was your first time listening, I just want to say big ups, enough respect for checking us out. You've made this Jamaican guy really happy that you're here with us today. And I'd love your help with keeping this black excellence flowing each and every week. So if you haven't yet subscribed, hop on over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Search trailblazers.fm and subscribe, rate, and review us there. Be sure to browse through some of our past episodes. There are more than 150 published episodes now. And a little something is out there for everyone to help keep the knowledge flowing. We grow when you, as part of our Blazer Nation community, shares and invites your friends and family to listen to an episode 
you think might impact them most. We believe that someone listening to these inspiring stories are going to be moved to make significant changes that have generational impact for many others, both now and well into the future. Don't miss next week's episode. New episodes are released each and every Monday morning at 5 a.m. Eastern. Blaze the Nation, go out today and find a way to rise above, go way beyond, and keep blazing your trail. Your trail.